Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. There's, you know, our, our view of Christ is so small. And, and what Paul's trying to say, Paul, the apostle, is that idea of the mystery and you know, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as we get deeper and drilled down into that, we suddenly, our vision expands bigger and bigger and bigger into the, we're invited into that mystery, not to be esoteric or become a monastic and, and contemplate the mysteries up on top of a pole. Yeah. <laughs> it's much more in community, though, to learn and share. Paul's talking about this mystery, but he's talking about a mystery revealed. He's talking about Christ. The mystery revealed, yeah, there's, it's not to remove mystery. There's still things that escape our finite capacities. But what you get in idolatrous religion, in Eastern religion, and in, I'm presuming, most of what passes for Christians' mystery, is the idea that God's unknowableness is a kind of wall that we bump up against, and it's impenetrable. But I presume that in Christ, there is an infinite depth, that Christ is the Logos, and there's no end of that Logos. In other words, there's no wall, there's no end of the pursuit of understanding. The mystery is continually revealing himself and unfolding for us. You know, this is the picture in Romans 8, the mystery revealed, the word is near you, it's in your heart. You don't go up to heaven and retrieve it. And you don't go down to the depths of the ocean and retrieve it. What Paul is describing then is people project the notion that to achieve this thing, it's almost like they're making an, an absolute wall there, that a barrier that cannot be crossed. So I think there's bad mysticism and there's good mysticism. Yeah, that's excellent, Paul. Excellent. I had a guy come into my class who there's just so much flakiness anymore. I presume too much from people. He's a professor at, you know, in some graduate school. And I, I just asked him a base. He was going to speak on mysticism. And I trying to get the conversation I started, I said, well, okay, let's begin just to get started here. What would be a good mysticism and a bad mysticism? And he said, I never thought of that question. That's what we're getting. We're getting the continual, oh, the Buddhist, everything's equal. All mystics are equal. And, and I think that's a huge error. You know. I, I presume that, what's, that, that that's what Paul's doing in 9-11, that here is salvation history. Isn't that Hegel that explained to us how history works? Yes, yes, he gives us the yeah. whole dialectic. Yeah, yeah, that here's everything. Similar to Paul. <laughs> Same as Paul. Paul, <laughs> can, oh, can I ask a question? Because I don't, I don't know, and I'm, and, I, and I'm honestly saying for, for all you guys, I don't know the answer. If my reading of 9 through 11, or hearts or whoever, isn't what Paul is doing. That is, in other words, if he's if the argument doesn't culminate in 11:32 or possibly 11:36, and if it's not Calvin, where God has chosen some, maybe we don't even have to go that far. Maybe it's like, well, if it's uh, that maybe God's going to save some people but not all people, which I'm open to, uh, because of their unwillingness, you know, their hardness of heart, etc. But I, I guess I'm wondering what you, what the what the alternative understanding is. There a third way? 
you understand that I was just making a, a slight addendum to heart. And that is, I think that we do not just need to say the question, well, what if, is dismissed. I'm agreeing with what with the idea, the sweep of this chapter. But I'm also saying, yes, but the movement of Christ is, in fact, to be traced. There is the movement in Israel, repeated in Christ, of a pot held over for destruction. I'm not claiming that I've got this completely worked out. By acknowledging that the what-if is not just dismissed, the value in that, it's in no way it's really not a challenge to any kind of universal movement, but the value in it is to say, yes, but here we have the movement of salvation history in which we see, in other words, I think your illustration with Jacob and Esau, and you go through the history of Israel, I don't know that that's plugging in to Hart's dismissal of the what-if. In other words, I'm not agreeing with everything N.T. Wright's doing here. I'm just saying on that little, on that section, he identifies this movement with Christ. I don't know that it makes a huge difference other than by saying it that way, it brings a depth, it introduces real-world history into the equation. By saying that, uh, that Paul is entertaining a conditional hypothetical, I don't think that it's that we have to necessarily then make the move to say, well, that's dismissive of human history. I mean, I think that Paul's doing precisely the opposite, that he's working out human history in light of, because we would normally think that, that because, you know, hearts know is that it's not that God perhaps wished to display his indignation and therefore prepared vessels of wrath, but rather whether God, although inclined to show his indignation, nevertheless tolerates vessels suitable for destruction so that he'll instead be able to display his mercy when the time comes for raising up the vessels of mercy. And so it's like, I mean, I, I don't know that you have to be dismissive of where my own understanding is breaking down. is Because is, isn't like the charge against universalism precisely that? It's like, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> What's this life for? What's the purpose of my history? What's the purpose of human history? You know, it's what Alan said. It's like, well, why not just uh, eat, drink, and be merry because we're all going to be saved or whatever. What's the point of it all? That pastoral sort of um, care that you could say, well, we don't want people to become complacent. You know, if, if they know that they're going to be saved, they might get lazy. Is that trade-off worth? It's a fair question to ask, you know, you guys, that do you think that Paul, St. Paul, believe that God is going to save, that he's the savior of all men and that he's going to save uh, everyone. Because if you do believe, if you think that Paul believes that, that really does change, I think, the, the way that you have to kind of read Paul. Paul never brings up Gehenna, not once. You know, you could do a study of Paul in that way. Like you could read Paul as, as though he were talking about a universal reconciliation of all things. He uses that language quite frequently. And, I think that it may in fact change the, our understanding of Paul's gospel, of, of the vision of, of his God, of you know, the depths of his understanding of God's love, uh, his forgiveness, his reckon. In other words, it's like we, we can go all the way with this thing, right? It's like we can go partway or we can go all the way. And it's like, but I'm not, I'm not claiming to know the answer. 
But I do think that however you answer that question, it really can determine then the way that you read Paul, you know, Paul's New Testament writings. You may be misunderstanding what I'm saying. What you just said does not stand over and against a reading that would say the movement here, the vessel of destruction is Israel. But that doesn't mean Israel is finally destroyed. Israel is saved. And so the movement is not one to final destruction, but one in which there is rejection, and then through that rejection, universal salvation. As I said, I think that's why Paul is making this echo from Jeremiah 18. Because you know, in Jeremiah 18, God shows Jeremiah that he is the potter and Israel is the clay. And you know, they were a vessel of wrath because of their unfaithfulness in, in Jeremiah's story, because of idolatry. They exchanged God for, for the idols. But God speaks in that chapter of remaking the vessel into something different, into you know, a different one and to one that pleases him. But I think it's key, I think it's halfway there in the chapter, that God does put some, some decision on Israel to make, because he says something like, you know, if they decide to leave their unfaithfulness, that's when God will make a different vessel out of them. And I think, in, you know, the righteousness of, uh, of God would be, you know, in, in the context of, of Paul, you know, it's going to be done through Israel. You know, the Messiah was eventually coming through them, whether they were a vessel of wrath or whether they were a vessel of mercy. You know, it was their decision, but the plan uh, was already set in motion. You know, the, the whole point here with Paul is, is that, that you know, salvation was coming eventually for all types of vessels. <laughs> but you decide which type of vessel you want to be, and God can remake you to be a different type of, uh, type of vessel. And, and, and I think that's where the participation that we speak of comes in. Once you get the knowledge of this whole thing and, and still reject it, I think that's when we start with this whole discussion that we usually talk, Mr. Axon talks often about psychopaths. <laughs> you know, the people you have to be careful of because those are the ones that are truly dangerous. They know and they will still, you know, wrong you. What we do with the, these chapters is we disconnect the idea of this being a group of people, and we try to make this whole idea about salvation as of an individual. So we start seeing, well, maybe I'm a vessel of wrath. Maybe uh, Tim is a vessel of mercy. And here I think God is talking about, well, Paul is talking about, you know, the whole nation. And that participation is the one that would end up determining, you know, which group you are. And I think, you know, when we have this idea that God is the one that would send, you know, somebody to hell or, or to destruction, I still, I think we still have this idea of like an Aztec type of uh, God, uh, a vengeful God. And I don't think that's the point. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something similar to uh, the door uh, to hell is locked on the inside <laughs> from our John class. I think it was chapter five where the healing at Bethesda happens. You know, Jesus doesn't just like immediately heal the, the, the lame man. He, he first asks him a question and he says, do you wish to get well? <laughs> he puts this choice on the, on the person. He could have said, no, you know, I, I make money through being lame. <laughs> People throw money at me. Uh, this is my living. <laughs> and, but still, you know, Jesus asked that question. 
you know, do you wish to get well? And I think that that's the whole point of the gospel, as Tim was saying. Salvation is already there. We have to, we just have to give the good news. But the question still will be to, you know, those people, do you wish to get well? You know the truth now because I'm telling you the truth. Are you going to choose to stay in the lie? That's on you. You either participate on the truth or you either part- participate in the lie. It's not that God send, would, you know, send someone to hell, but you're rejecting the only source of life. And that is, you know, the truth. At least that's the way I'm seeing, you know, these these chapters here. And uh, the C.S. Lewis one, I used to, I used to think that, and, and I can still think. The only thing is that there's a famous quote by I think it's an Eastern Orthodox theology that says, "If there is a hell, we can rest assured Jesus will be there till the very last person has left. So he's down there with them, holding the door shut." <laughs> I don't, anyway, so. But that, that's an Eastern Orthodox father, somebody who said that, you know, if there is a hell, I'm sure Jesus will be there until the last sheep has come home. He'll leave yeah. the other 99 and go for those, those one or one million or one billion. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, like, I totally appreciate what you said. That's excellent. And especially the part about, you see, I, I'm so stuck in Calvinism, vessels of wrath, I'm always thinking individual people. And the context is the nations, the nations, the nations. So, you know, they're raised up and some are raised up and some fall down. and They're clay in the hand of God to do with as he will to bring about the Jesus story. Yeah. So, yeah, that's very helpful to remember. It's groups, not individuals. I think that you said it very well, and I think that that's, uh, it's a very cogent sort of uh, position to have. I, I, I really do. It's like I, I totally respect where you're where you're coming from and it, and it makes sense to me. I, I guess it's um, my only, I guess, question will be, will God fully and finally allow his deranged, you know, you have to be deranged, first of all, to reject the love of God, to turn away from the good of your soul, <laughs> to turn away from the source of your life, the source of everything that's beautiful and good and true that you have to not only be deceived, but you have to be a little bit deranged too. Totally, Matt. The problem is that most of us have never heard of this God who's love, all love and all compassion and all kindness. The God most of us have, turned, have grown up with is, I'd rather be in hell than be with that God if there is a hell. If there's even, this is someone, Jeff Turner says this, even conceive of a God that could create an eternal hell that would torture people forever, for me to be with that person would be like hell for me, as <laughs> so I'd be in hell. So it's you're damned if you, you're damned if you don't. To even conceive of such a being is already a form of hell. We've just not had a very nice God that we've been trying to encourage people to follow. We've had a horrible, horrible person. And that's the whole point Jesus made. He comes to this earth and he says, you guys, nobody has ever seen the Father. You guys, are, you just don't get it. And then he starts to unpack and reveal what God is like. And that's why the first, the first line of the Lord's Prayer is, Abba, reveal the distinctiveness of your name. How God is unlike all the other gods. Because all the other gods are punitive. All the other gods need blood. All the other gods need sacrifice. All the other gods need worship. All the other gods need, love me, love me, I'm lonely, or whatever it is. And, and Jesus comes and says, no, he's not how you have imagined him at all. So it's like, oh, so it, there's no economy of exchange. He doesn't need his son to be beaten up so he can forgive us. So, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just a horrible story. And, and you know who pointed this out the best? 
new atheists. They're saying, we forgive people all the time. I think I said this before. I don't require you to kill my son. But anyway, such a horrible view of that. And I know Paul's been promoting it right from day one here. Not, no, sorry, not the verbal view, the good view. <laughs> I really think, you know, when I went through Paul's book, if you really get what he's doing there, if he's right, we're not only deceived and we're not only perverse, but we're quite literally deranged because of sin, because of the deception of sin and an orientation where we've taken death up into ourselves that would cause us to, to turn away from the source of our being, the power that established us, as Kierkegaard puts it, and to instead relish in futility, idolatry, sinful, evil, violent, wicked, you know, self-hatred, you know, whatever it is. We're deranged. We're, we're, we're so deranged that we would kill the source of the Lord of glory. And so what my point is, is that our situation requires, I think, a sort of mercy. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? It's, I can't think of a different way to put a better way to put it. It's like that our situation is such that without the mercy of God, the, the utter forgiveness and love and rest, restoration and healing and patience. Now, does that mean that we won't have to go off into the fires of Gehenna? Some of us, maybe all of us, Jesus says in Mark 9, that everyone will be salted with fire. Maybe that, you know, starts now for some of us. It's like, I don't know. But what I'm saying is, is this God of love that we're talking about, will he suffer to lose even one of his deranged children, even though the most deranged, the Nazis, the whoever, you know. Yankee fans. Yankee, that's right. Yankee fans are the most deranged of, of them all, <laughs> you know. And it's like, we, I think we, we really have, you know, we've made a mystery out of it. And I know I have, but it's like, well, clearly the way that God could make everything right is to bring about reconciliation between his children. Now, I don't know how that would work out, but I would think that through whatever that purging fire is, through whatever that revealing of uh, someone's sort of uh, the futility of their evil to them or their, their sin against their brother, and for them to even take a step towards repentance or, or whatever would be enough. And, and I think even in the children, because remember, even the people who, that's my understanding, that even the victims of these terrible things, Jesus says, if you don't forgive them, your father won't forgive you. I don't think he's just talking about for the people who stepped on your shoe. He's talking about the people who have done you the most harm. He's saying, if you don't forgive them, your father won't forgive you. So in other words, the entry point, the cost of the ticket, you know, the cost of the ticket is a total forgiveness to get into God's presence. Why? Because that's precisely what God has done for us in Christ. He has forgiven all debts. They're all canceled. They're forgiven. So therefore, you, in order to come into his presence, you have to be like your father. You have to forgive debts. It doesn't matter what they did to you. I, and I think that even for the victims of like, you know, terrible things like the Holocaust or whatever, it's my understanding that like even those people will have to come to a place in their hearts where they forgive because that's how the, that's what the cross teaches us about reconciliation. That's how it's done. It's not through an exchange. It's just through the forgiveness of the debt. That's how they, that's, that's how the system of, of exchange is undone. It, it's that God enters into the system of exchange where we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with our debts and pain or debts are paid. And he comes in and just says, it's Jubilee. It's the year of Jubilee. Everything's been forgiven. Now, in order to participate... You sound like a Girardian. Yeah. I mean, in order to participate in it, you, yourself, you have to forgive. You know, you might even have to forgive God 
for perceived wrongs. You might have to, you have to forgive your enemies, the people who did you the worst. You have to forgive yourself. You have to forget, you know, that's what it is. And it's, why is it? Because that's the way universal reconciliation comes about. That's the only way. Love. Yeah. And you know something, Matt? Now that you're saying that, you're convincing me out of my universalism because maybe I could imagine someone who goes, I can't do that. I can't go down that road. I'd rather stay here isolated in my little island by myself than have to meet the person that raped my daughter or have to go see the person who ran over my wife or I can't do that. Or maybe they will eventually, but you know, you're wrecking my theology. I mean, I, but it's a fair point. It's a fair point. I mean, what no. if, you know, that's Dostoevsky's point, by the way. This is why Hart takes Ivan Karamazov's argument so seriously. That's the profundity mm -hmm. of his argument. He's saying that, right. well, wait a right. second, who's going to make the mother of the little boy who was torn apart by dogs forgive the master for attacking her child? You know what I mean? Like, who? why should that fall on her? She's a victim. She's a victim of someone else's evil. And now she had like the price of her admission is, is to, yeah, I think that it is. And I don't know, maybe it's because once, you know, I don't know if it's because once you see that this whole God thing is real and that this whole Jesus thing is real. And if you get even a glimpse of how, of what you've been forgiven, of, that maybe you're, that's what compels you to say, I forgive you. And maybe you need the ages. Maybe you'll need an age to come to that point. I don't know, man. You have, you have people like Cain. <laughs> and even though he was questioned by God himself, you know, he was still, he's a psychopath. <laughs> but he, but God, he still, he still rejects the whole thing. You know, it's like, yeah, he's dead. But God even uh, has mercy on Cain. Yeah, he's got mercy on him, but he still lets him go. And I think that's the problem. I, that would, I think, be the way. And, you know, my problem with universalism is you still have a violent God who forces you to be with him even though you don't want to. This is the fathers, by the way. They said that the most fundamental virtue that we can have is patience. They said that all the other virtues come from, they sort of grow out of patience. The reason why that is, is because God, if nothing else, is patience. That God can outweigh you. <laughs> like God is, is, is there a verse somewhere that says his mercy lasts forever? Or is that not in the Bible? I can't remember. Yes, mercy endures forever. <laughs> it's over and over and over and over that it says that. Right? That his, mercy, that, his, that his wrath is but for a moment, but that his mercy endures forever. His love endures forever. How long is forever? His mercy endures forever. How long? That's a long time. I think that God can outweigh our sin. It's finite. Our sin, our wickedness, our evil, our failure is a, is a finite thing. God's love is infinite. His, his patience is infinite. He's an eternal... We're subjects of space and time, infinitude, and limit, we're limited. God is unlimited in his power to save. He's unlimited in his love, in his patience, in his mercy. All these th this whole situation that we're thrown into is, a, is one of finitude. Can, uh, can, I, can I just add one other, one other thing, and it's kind of one of the things that um, I think Alan brought Because you sort of go to the, the, the question, though, that gets raised by these discussions is, well, kind of what is the point? Like, what, what, what are we supposed to do? What are we here for? What, what? And I think sometimes we have to think outside of these little boxes that we're in, we've got, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm just referring to, I, I think the idea of Christ as redeeming the cosmos, whatever that means, I don't think we've really got our head around it yet. And I think Jesus is kind of a big deal. 
<laughs> and I think sometimes we just have no idea of just how big that deal it really is. And even the incarnation that here we are, you know, the, this, these bipedal upright, semi-hairless or hairless semi-aquatic species that have the ability to communicate with this God and have him talk to us. We need such a huge picture of the grand scheme of everything. And I think we've got to dig deeper and, 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 and further into the mystery. Like, like you said, the mystery isn't just, it's being unfolded, it's been revealed. But Paul saw part of it, and uh, Paul, Paul the Apostle and John, but, but we're seeing more of it. And the Spirit's still alive today, and he's still revealing more today. And I think there's just so much excitement about what we can see, and then invite and draw people to come into in that pursuit of God, in that pursuit of Jesus, in that sense of, wow, this guy's kind of a pretty cool dude in so many ways. It's mind-boggling to think, if you really take it serious, it's like, okay, if God's love is infinite, and it's not in any way predicated upon anything else, it's, it is just who he is. God is Hyper love. Hyper-relationality. Yeah, it's Hyper-relationality. Like, yeah, Trinity, uh, the, the pleroma, you know, the fullness of love. So the, the, any love that we uh, experience is just to participate in his life already. So what Paul, I think this is, you know, Paul's sort of area, which he's great in, is sin. I mean, that's what he's, he's, and he's giving us the gravity of it all. But, but, what, but what I'm saying is, though, is that whatever that problem is, it's a failure, it's a, but it's a finite sort of situation. And I'm afraid that we can infinitize the problem, or we can we can infinitize sin or evil or human will or whatever you want to call it, and it's like no. But the only thing that's infinite in a properly theological sense, I think, is the goodness of God, the love of God, God Himself. Everything else, there is no hell without God's present. You know, God's every. You know, He's omnipresent, and where God is, there is His love. As McDonald argues at length, that God's justice and His love is the same thing. God is one. God is never two different things. It, you know, God's justice and his love are always one. So even if someone has to go off to Gehenna, it's the love of God that's there with them. All right? Now, they, may, they experience that, apparently, in a very different way than we might. But what I'm just saying is I want to be careful to avoid a dualism. Because, again, that is, I think that that's what's happening is we're saying, well, no, actually what's primary is human will, human decisionism, it's to kind of make humans the primary sort of um, piece in the salvation uh, story. It's like, well, no. That Paul's whole point is is that it's God who is merciful. Uh, it's God's love. It's it's Christ who has done all these things, and that's the good news. That's the great news. I think I, I'm agreeing. Let me add with uh, what Tim is describing and what you are describing. I think the the research program that we're all involved in, in being Christians, continues. We should expect, there should be the expectation that this thing becomes clearer and clearer to us, that theology is not finished, that we continue to mine our understanding of it. In defense, I assume that when you said Paul is really good with sin, you meant me. <laughs> I was wondering that too. Paul, Paul is the master of sin. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> He's got it down pat. He's got evil down pat. I've never seen the, You're the expert. You're the expert on... <laughs> I, I would think, though, 
That one. Well, you know, Paul, if you can't be a if you can't be a good example, you can be a horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that the apprehension of this thing <laughs> is though from a place of salvation. Yeah. In other words, our understanding both of both things unfolds yeah. together. Yeah. That I've come to a deep appreciation of a Trinitarian theology because I've seen what it would mean for the absence of God, you know, how that functions. I'm defending, I'm, I'm getting defensive here. Not really. Uh, but I'm agreeing with Tim that, that we often, unfortunately, in the way that we do, I mean, Calvinism is the beautiful example here. You really don't need to do much more. The work has all been done. The package is sealed. All you got to do is, you know, sign the on the dotted line and receive the package. But in other words, theology doesn't open up reality for us. But I think done in a New Testament fashion, all of reality is opened up for us for exploration and understanding. In both its goodness, its depth of goodness, and in the failure to achieve that goodness. And, I mean, if you understand what I know that you do, is that what, I, you know, I think that you would agree that the meaning and purpose of life is theosis. It's union with God. That that's the whole, that's why we're here. So it's like, well, what are we doing here? Why are we, you know, why? well, the point is to learn how to unite yourself through the community with God. And, and sin is what is the obstacle. You know what I mean? Sin is the thing that prevents that. You know, death is the thing that prevents that, you know, that gives rise to sin. So it's like, well, you learn obedience. And as you learn obedience, you learn how to be united with God. That's my, that's my understanding, right? I'm hope, hopefully we're in the process of learning that, that obedience and that union with God, however fallible we may be right now in this life. I, I hope that we don't need, you know, maybe if there is a fire, I think that First Corinthians says that we'll all sort of pass through the, the fire in some way. Hopefully it's a quicker process because we've already been, we've been walking through the fire our whole Christian lives. We've been, the dross is being burned away. We really are turning, we're being saved from our sins. You know, that's the critical thing. It's like, that's a beautiful thing. I think Paul uh, says it there in Romans, is it 10, that, that he's saving his people from his sin. That's the work of salvation or whatever, is to be united with God. I think that you can refuse that, Alan. I really, I, I'm, I think you, re, I, I did for most, and I, and I still do sometimes, right? It's like I still refuse like to enter into the life of God. But the discipline, I think, is to repent and to continually enter back into the life of God. But that's not what makes God love me or accept me. God loves the wicked. Is my my understanding that he, with an infinite love, you understand his love isn't predicated upon their uh, their sort of reaction to him. So if that's the case, I don't understand if the, if what I just said is true. If God infinitely loves the wicked, and that his love isn't predicated upon their response to him in any way, because he already uh, infinitely loves them, then how can they not be saved? You know, examples like maybe Sodom and Gomorrah or Noah's flood. You know what. Mr. Axon talks about radical evil. I think sometimes it gets to a point that God has to save a few from that, you know, radical evil. In 1 Peter 3, where he says that through, you know, the water, he saves eight people. He doesn't talk about the destruction of the rest, but it's through that water that some are saved. And so I understand and I agree with you on, you know, the the length of, of God's, you know, love and mercy. But 
I think there's also that participation. And I think Paul makes that whole point several times too, that if you're not in, in that participation, then you're missing of that, you know, salvation. I think it's even chapter 10 where, you know, it says that in order to be saved, you also have to submit to Jesus' lordship. But how are you going to do that? Well, someone has to preach. <laughs> someone has to tell you about it. Because I think we fall, we might end up falling in something similar to available light. People are, are going to be saved depending on the amount of light, you know, they have. And so it's like, well, why should I go and preach, you know, to some place where they don't know Jesus if maybe they're good people <laughs> and they'll eventually be saved? But why if I go and preach and they reject Jesus? <laughs> so then they're not saved because I went and preached. I think that, you know, it's a kind of a paradox uh, in available light. And I think we might fall into something similar because I do see, you know, things like, like I said, like Noah or even uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes evil gets to a point that in order to save the few, <laughs> you still have to destroy the evil. And I think it's because it's not that, you know, he's not patient, is that we sometimes don't care about his patience. Jesus was all loving. He was all patient. He was all forgiving. And people still, you know, they saw that and they still killed him. You know, we are willing to kill God if, if we are, end up participating in that evil, you know, in that radical evil. So I, I think, you, you know, salvation is universal. I just don't think it's universalism, what we're seeing in Romans. I, I see a participation. There must be a participation on our part. And I don't think it just falls on us because God already, you know, did the most difficult part of it. But I think he wants us to take a part of it, too. And so there's that choice. You know, I, I think I even see that, you know, in Jesus' ministry. He could, you know, stay preach, you know, for a longer time. But he's, you know, he starts to give some of that ministry to the disciples to the point that he says, all right, I'm gone. And you guys keep doing it. And so there's that participation aspect of, of salvation. And so that's why I was saying earlier, you know, you either participate in the lie or you participate in the truth. But I don't think you can be saved in that sense if you're participating in the lie the whole time. And I think, you know, yes, God is infinite, but we are not. I think we do have a limit in order to, you know, repent if we ever accept that, you know, salvation. Uh, Revelation, you know, he speaks to several churches, and, and almost in every church he says, repent. <laughs> Those who have ears. <laughs> and it's always that, you know, that exhortation of you need to change. You know, every time Jesus encountered a sinner, it was always, you know, okay, yeah, your sins are forgiven, but go and sin no more. You, you need to participate in this. And so, yeah, all debts are canceled. You know, and if we use that example of debt, yeah, you know, you can say all debts are canceled, but that doesn't mean I cannot go and get in debt again. That's where I'm falling in, in all this. You know, I think, I think, yes, God can forgive easily, but I don't think he's going to force someone who doesn't, you know, willingly want to be with him to make him be with him. Because uh, in that, I would see, an, again, the same violent God that we're trying to be against. Because you have some, some type of God that says, okay, you know, I'm, I'm trying to court this girl. I'm trying to, you know, get her to love me. Eventually, at some point, she will. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm, and you have this creeper that's, you know, always there at her house. He, he's always looking at the window. He's bringing the chocolates. He's bringing the flowers. The girl says no each time, but he's just thinking eventually at some point, you know, I'm patient. And I'm going to live forever, so I'm patient. And eventually, one day, you'll, you, you, you'll fall into my arms. And I just, 
I think that's a violent God as well, because he's just waiting for you to accept him. And I don't think that would always be the case. We see that example with the Pharisees. They, they see his love, they see his patience, they see his forgiveness, and they're still willing to kill him. And I think many times radical evil will, will do that. You have the option. You end up killing God if you can. God is dead. <laughs> I think that's why I like that quote from the Stricken by God book, you know, God forgives your theology. (laughs) So you might be wrong, I might be wrong, you know, maybe we're both wrong, but eventually he can forgive our theology. And, you know, with this, I think we're falling into the same thing as when sometimes I discuss with somebody else, you know, eternal torment. I always tell them, you know, we're both Christians, so if you believe in eternal hell and I don't, we're still participating on the good stuff. So (laughs) eventually we're both saved. So who cares (laughs) if you believe it's going to be forever or not? I think that's the same. I would be the same in the same thing with universalism or if it's not the fact that we're participating in in this and and the, and the truth, then I don't think if I think it's going to be everybody that's saved or not, I don't think that makes a difference. It's not my choice. And I'm not the, you know, I'm not the judge anyway. So I'm not the one saying who enters and who doesn't, which that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I respect that. I mean, I, my my hope is that the you know the story of Christ is a story of God's. You know that there's no limit. There's no limit to the lengths to which God is willing to go to save His children. Yeah, that's, you know that's that's my my hope is that that's what the story of the cross is teaching us is that there's no limit to the lengths to which God is willing to go to save his children. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the prodigal son story, you know, the father is always there, you know, waiting, but I think that there's still that aspect where the son has to come back. He comes. Yeah. I, think that, that, I think that's the story of all humanity, you know, even with Adam and Eve, you know, they knew God personally, if you would, you know, you would say, and they still decided to go a different way. And now we have, you know, these two categories of either either in Adam or in Christ. And so eventually Adam, you know, took the other way. But I think, you know, you have that aspect and even in that parable. You know, God is waiting, and I agree with you, you know, he's patient. He's willing to do everything, but he's, he still wants the son to, you know, come back. If death has been done away with, if it's been overthrown and defeated, then... Uh, annihilation may have, in fact, then been defeated because that's what annihilation is. It's to bring about the the destruction, the death of of something that God has created. So, if death really has been dethroned, if even if death itself is to be thrown into Hades, then death is it's been undone, and that's great news. You know that again, it's just something that, that I want to hope for. And and but I, I it could be that that's Paul's theology, Saint Paul's theology. We have no idea just how much God, you know, it's that chapter eight. No, there's no height. There's nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Now, I've often had people say, well, Paul is talking about Christians because that's the other thing that we're saying, right? We're saying, well, Paul's talking about Christians. He, he's saying, you know, it's for Christians that know that the love, there's no height or nor depth. But and I, I'd like to get your guys' opinion, but the whole letter of Paul to the Romans, I think that the way that he says it is to all in Rome who are beloved of God and called to be saints, called to be holy. So I think that this is Paul's letter to the world. 
I think. But I may be wrong about that, right? That, that Rome is sort of the world. Isn't that kind of like the symbolism of sort of Rome is like, well, so in other words, I've had a lot of people tell me, not just in the conversation of universalism, but just of, Christ, just of the Bible in general, that it's like, oh, well, that letter is written to Christians. So don't imagine that any of this stuff applies to non-Christians because it's only written to Christians, right? And which is maybe fair. But at least here in verse, you know, chapter 1, verse 7, he says, To all in Rome who are beloved of God and called to be holy. I think it's an important distinction. And, and Paul, I guess I'm, I'm interested to know what you think uh, or what, you, what all you guys think about that. It's like, is Paul's promises only to those who are Christians or in Christ or, you know, all those different things predicated, in other words, upon our being transitioned into the promises of God somehow through baptism or whatever? Or is this his letter to, human, to, to all, to humanity, to Rome, to the world? Let, let me do the Japanese thing here again. And, <laughs> uh, it may have done us all a good service to go through and done a really bad reading. And, you know, what people are usually doing is they're saying, well, they're doing what you're describing. They're saying, well, this is just to this particular group, and it applies to this particular group. I think that we've all agreed that in talking about universalism, we're not, we've all agreed these categories are universal categories. Whether we all agree every single individual, we, but I think what we've come to agreement on is the sweep of the letter is as you say. It is to the capital city of the world, and it is to all people, and the movement is universal, as we've all agreed. Yes, there are even places here in 10 where he predicates that universal on the preaching, on the hearing, on the believing. So I think we've, we've arrived at a, at a very similar position that is a departure from a peculiarly bad reading in which people want to qualify these categories. But that's not the way Paul's working this out. Which reminds me of, what is it, John twenty thirty one, where it says, all these things were written so that you, you, know, you, you will believe in, in Jesus. I think that's the whole point of the whole Bible, not just, you know, Romans for that, for that matter. Yeah, I think if I'm going to agree with somebody in this whole discussion, I think that's going to be with the Apostle Peter where he says that Paul, in his letter, speaks of things where, which are hard to understand. <laughs> I agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the scary part's the second part of that verse where he says, which, Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, which foolish men twist, you know. And, yeah, for their own destruction. <laughs> and, I, you know, there may be, in the earliest manuscripts, there may be a footnote there that names me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I hope not. All right. <laughs> this has been a great discussion. I hope you've all uh, I've I've benefited from it and been encouraged by it. I've been able to hear the whole thing. It's been great. Really oh, good. Enjoy it. Good. Matt, are you going to the movie next week? I will be going to Chicago. I'm I'm thinking of it. We have theaters where you can get your dinner delivered right to your chair. VIP, it's called. Wow. Man, do they have beer? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Appreciate all right. you guys. Good class. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. 
If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.